Hi, I'm James Gardner, host of Your History, Your Story, a podcast for everybody who loves stories about interesting people and events told by those who uncovered them from within their own family trees. This, we hope, will inspire you to discover and celebrate your history and your story. In today's episode, Bright Skies and Warm Memories, I'll be speaking with John Elliott, forecaster and reporter for WCBS-TV in New York. John is a multi-Emmy award-winning reporter whose career spans over 28 years. The son of a cabinet maker, John grew up in Michigan and is one of eight children. Today, he'll be sharing his memories of life growing up in a large family and how that influenced him to enter the field of communications and broadcasting. John, who has covered many significant events during his career, will also share stories about those experiences, which include presidential campaign trails, dust storms in the West, hurricanes in the South, and Superstorm Sandy in the New York area. I'd now like to welcome John Elliott to our show. Welcome, John. What an honor. I'm a little intimidated. Normally, I'm the guy asking the questions, so this ought to be interesting. Now we'll see the shoes on the other foot. I know. Well, I know it's going to be wonderful. John, I'm going to start off by asking, where were you born and raised, and what do you know about your family's roots? I was born in Pontiac, Michigan, and the interesting thing about my birth was my grandfather delivered me. My mom's dad was her doctor, and he delivered eight of her nine children. I was the last child of my mother that my grandfather, Dr. Prevet, delivered. Your grandfather delivered eight of my mom's nine children. You're kidding me. No. Now, was he, a, <laughs> oh, was he an obstetrician? No, just a guy off the street. Uh, no, he, yes, he was. I was born in 1963, so he began his practice decades before that, and decades before that, you were just a doctor. But then this whole notion of specialties came about, and gynecology and obstetrics they had to kind of fight for their right to be at the table. And he was, kind of led the charge in Michigan. In fact, I think he was one of the first certified obstetricians and gynecologists in Michigan. That's a cool story. How many people can say that their grandfather delivered them? I don't know. To me, every time I think about it, it's, it's kind of weird. Like, how's it going down there, Dad? But, but, <laughs> but he did it. And not to be morbid, but obviously I'm going to be. My mom's first child, she was in a car accident at nine months. So she lost the baby oh. inside. Oh. So her dad had to deliver a stillborn baby. Oh, no. And yet they all, everybody was stoic. Now, can you first take us back further to when did your family on both sides come to this continent? Uh, mom's family's a little mysterious because we just found out a few years ago, there may have been some chicanery. Because Chicanery. we were always told that we were French Huguenots, that we were the proud. We left because we needed religious persecution, so we left France and we came to the Carolinas. Well, now, one of my second cousins is not so fast, Skippy. Grandpa may have changed the name to fit in with the in-kids in North Carolina a hundred years ago. Now, I'm not going to go on the records and say he did, but I just think it's interesting because we were told ever since we were kids that we were French Huguenots on mom's side. Maybe now we're just English commoners. I don't know. I do know this, that dad, they are Scottish. They are just Scottish. In fact, my dad, when I was growing up, one of his favorite football cheers was get that quarterback. They are very Scottish. <laughs> we are very thrifty people. 
do you know when your father's family came here from Scotland? I know that both my grandparents were from Scotland, and they met as like wee infants on the ship. My dad was actually born in Canada. He was born in London, Ontario, and spent his formative years in Strathroy, Ontario. My dad was born in 1908. My dad was 55 when I was born. Yeah. So I have that interesting perspective. My mom knew of the Depression as a kid, but my dad, it affected his life because he had to leave Canada to try with his family to try to survive by coming to the States. Yeah, I was doing the math in my head when you said you were born in 1963 to have a dad who was that much older than you. Did he tell you stories when you were a kid about his family? I think we were. there was this overall sense that their world was so different from our world. I mean, my dad can remember the first time he heard radio. Whereas, you know, everything to us, is, it's everything's ubiquitous. Everything. It's just constant, this onslaught of mass media, social media, micromedia. No, that was not the case. And like the first time he remembers seeing a car... And they remember horses, just things that milestones that were huge for them that are just so commonplace for us. So, yeah, he would tell some of those stories and stories about a dog. He had this really smart dog that would trick them. It would pretend to have a bad leg. And then as soon as they turned around, it was fine. He said, that was a smart dog. Um, Just (laughs) stories like that. And I wish I had asked more questions, had a wonderful relationship with my dad. But you always think, boy, if I had more time, I'd have more answers. Yeah, it's funny. I'm sitting here with you, and I'm older than you are, and your dad remembers seeing the first automobile rolling out in his town at that time. Yeah, and and I can remember, and this is, you know, from the obscure file, he would tell me names of automobiles, like the Oakland. There was a car called the Oakland. So the Oakland was the precursor to the Pontiac. Well, my aunt, his little sister, ended up working at Pontiac with a cat named John DeLorean. So I can remember hearing the John DeLorean stories because she actually helped John DeLorean with the Tempest becoming the GTO. So as a kid, Aunt Anne, she had a new Firebird every weekend because she had to write up the specs for the engineering department. Whereas my dad was a humble cabinet maker, but it was kind of merging of these two worlds but back to my dad and the Hudson and the Flint, all these old cars that he remembers that do not exist. But every now and then I'll see, oh, there's an Oakland. Not that my dad had one, but my dad knew of all these names that don't exist anymore. Wow. Wow. That is interesting. Yeah. Did your dad ever talk about his parents? Did you ever actually meet your dad's parents? No. That's interesting because it was... Uh, my grandma was a, a Campbell, and then my grandpa was an Elliot. They both passed before I was born. My grandfather on my mother's side, I may have been three when he died, and I was only like five or six when grandma died. So I don't have that relationship with grandparents, and that's something I, I miss. But everybody was older. I know what you mean. My parents were quite a bit older than most of my friends' parents, mm-hmm. but my grandparents were relatively young parents, so it sort of balanced out a little bit. Let me ask about your dad. You mentioned he was a cabinet maker. Right. So where did he pick up that trade? Was he apprenticed to somebody? His dad was a cabinet maker. They were a cabinet maker, and basically they would do whatever they needed to do to to make ends meet, but they worked with wood, and that's what they did. That's what they did in Canada, and they brought that skill here. He and his brothers ultimately 
founded a furniture manufacturing company, Elliott Furniture, and they made beautiful pieces. But then that industry totally changed. And this was after the war. And during the war, the uncles, Uncle Ross, was shot up in uh, the Italian campaign, the I think the Rapido River, and would never talk about it. Uh, Uncle Len served. Uncle Stewart served stateside. He was uh, actually worked in the auto, you know, in Detroit in World War II. They converted. They started making planes. They started making. So he stayed in the States and worked. And then my dad, after Pearl Harbor, he enlisted in the Navy, like every good American should, but he was a little too old, and he was immediately drafted in the Army. So he, they kept changing the dates and the age requirements, so he was drafted in the Army, and he said that was a blessing because when they sent him to Iceland, they put him on a destroyer, and he was sick the whole way. He said, if I'd been in the Navy, I'd have been sick for four years. <laughs> so, But after the war, he and his brother started a furniture manufacturing outfit for a while. Then they just all specialized in furniture repair, antique repair, refinishing, upholstery, and stuff like that. Wow, that's interesting. Now, tell me, your dad went to Iceland. Did he go anywhere else during oh, World War II? So he was in the Army Corps of Engineers, and they used to do intelligence tests, you know, the IQ test. Mm-hmm. And he scored very high. So he was a candidate for OCS, Officer Candidate School. This is a guy who was a high school dropout, but he was a voracious reader and he was very curious. And I think I inherited that from him. So he breezed right through Officer Candidate School and his background as a tradesman made him a candidate for uh, the Corps of Engineers. So that's what he did. He was at Schofield in Hawaii to help rebuild, I think, Hickman and obviously Pearl Harbor, and then he was in Reykjavik. You know, there was no Air Force in World War II. It was the Army Air Corps, and yep. they and they helped to, uh, it was a landing area and bases, and they shot down a couple of Nazi male planes. They were very proud of that. And then he was uh, stateside too, Fort Leonard Wood, Fort Rucker. So, uh, yeah, that's Alabama. So he And he loved being in the Army. He just loved serving. A little tiny guy, tinier than me, and scrappy. But he actually uh, had a platoon. He had a platoon of African-American guys. Did he? Yeah, in, in Alabama. So here we are in the 40s in Alabama, and you got five foot three or five foot five Harold Elliott and all these guys. And this story, you could coax stories out of him about yeah, this. Yeah. But he had to get his platoon through Dothan, Alabama. Well, apparently the chief of police in Dothan didn't want those guys coming through you're not going to you you've got to go outside of Dothan there's no way you can't bring them here so my dad when he heard that he said let's go talk to him so here he goes and he's uh goes in has a driver and they bring in two cars he says you know what I believe I represent the United States of America and I believe I carry a little bit more weight than the chief of police at Dothan, Alabama. And as he said that, when he would retell the story, he'd say, and I slapped my forty-five. You know, he had a sidearm with him. And then he just turned around and walked out and said, ah, you know, we're going to do it. Post sentries, we're not stopping. We're just going to go. And as they were going through, he noticed all the sentries snapping salutes all along the way. And it was because, you know, he stood up to it. So He did. Good yeah, for him. This was year, you know, this was decades before the 60s and all that that meant. But he was right there. Terrific. Yeah. Terrific. Yeah. So when did your dad meet your mom? 
Fascinating. Remember Grandpa, the one who delivered all the yeah, babies? Yeah, Grandpa the doctor. He was my dad's doctor. Not that my dad was a woman and he needed a gynecologist. Remember the whole, everybody's a doctor? And during the uh, Depression, Grandpa Prevet, they would sometimes pay him in eggs and chickens. I mean, it was the barter system. But he was my, he was the family doctor of my dad. And so both families, they went to the uh, First Baptist Church of Pontiac, Michigan, and they all knew each other. So uh, that's how they met. How cool. Now... Was your father out of the army when he married oh, your mom? Oh yeah, yeah. Because the war, you know, got out. He was in the duration of the war. Forty-five. Mom's eighteen years younger than dad. Was eighteen years younger than dad. Okay. So they weren't married till the fifties. Okay, married in the fifties. I want to hear about some of your earliest memories growing up and your fondest memories growing up in the Elliott household. Oh, it was a zoo. I mean, it was a, I can't believe I survived because I have five brothers and two sisters. And I was the youngest boy. I was number seven of eight. They lost their first baby. Then mom and dad had eight more kids. So I was number seven of eight. Now, if you know your numbers, seven is the perfect number. So I was basically the perfect child. Um, <laughs> of course, John. So I had the little sister who got everything. Now, but she says I got everything. So there's that tension. Then I had the, there were the four little boys and the two big boys. And then my dear, sweet sister, Ruth, she was like, after two boys, she like did oh so much work. I feel so bad to this day. Sometimes I just call her and say, I'm sorry. But she was there. And then you had the two kind of the older boys, and they were hippies. And then the other, there was just craziness going on all the time. We lived in a big farmhouse. We never had that much money. Four boys in one room, two boys down the hall, two sisters, stuff breaking. We never we didn't have heat upstairs. We would we'd try to import cats just for warmth. <laughs> it was just, I, but but it was at the same time it was great. You know, I I loved it. We had eighty acres, so we could take these long walks, and and my dad would teach us about the trees. And mom was a teacher in the school, so we always kind of had that juice going for us. And very musical. My mom was a good singer. My dad played bass and upright bass and was in a, he was actually in a little jazz combo before World War II. So we grew up uh, appreciating music. So there was a lot of music in the house. And I mean, it was a lot of fun, but I mean, it was, I mean, it was crazy. I mean, there there was a little bit of arson. There was some, a little bit of property damage here and there. It was uh, was fun times. Tell me a, a little more about your mom. Oh, she was sweetheart. She was tough. She was a strong, independent, smart uh, English teacher. And I think as I look back now, I was always attracted to that kind of woman because of mom. So my wife's a very strong, independent woman. Sometimes when I think, why did I marry a strong, independent woman? I say, oh, it's because of mom. But I don't know how she kept it all together. I know she was in, under constant stress. I remember she yelled a lot. But then as she got older, she, she hardly yelled at all. I mean, it was just kind of the heat of the moment trying to keep things together. She had all these different kids with all these different personalities, so many different personalities in that house. And, you know, we're a Christian family, so church was a big part. It was like Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. You know, and you had to get there. You were involved in that. But she was very involved in the school, so all the school plays. We were all in band and choir. So it was constant running around. And we lived out in the country, so it wasn't like you walked anywhere. You had to drive. Somebody had to get you there. Your mother must have dropped out, almost dead out, when her head hit the pillow every night. You know, I think about that because you wonder what we put them through. I have one child, and I was like, oh, my gosh. They had eight kids, and we had one bathroom. One bathroom? One bathroom, and it rarely worked. 
we had a well. We didn't have a sewer system. We didn't have, you know, we had like an old septic tank. And it was just like, uh, you know, sometimes you just wish you had an outhouse. So between limited funds, dad never made that much money. She never made that much money as an English teacher. And they were concerned about college. There was concerns about just living, you know, and you had to get cars for these kids and you had to pay for stuff. So I would imagine she was just always exhausted. I do have a bittersweet memory of my mom grading papers because she was an English teacher and she was a very committed, diligent English teacher. And that meant she had a lot of papers <laughs> to always grade. And she would sit by the fire. She was a kind of a, a big girl and she'd have them on her lap and she'd have her red pen and she would fall asleep and there'd be red lines just kind of meandering. And the students kind of got to know, oh, she fell asleep reading. And then she, oh, yeah, yeah. she come back, no, no, you, the tense is wrong. You need to get noun-verb agreement. Yeah, kids don't miss a trick, do they? John, I want to ask you about your memories of holiday traditions in your family. Do you have any special memories of those times? Christmas. I've had a couple of string of bad Christmases because my mom died just before Christmas in 2019 and then 2020 with the pandemic. And then I had, I was getting my kidney work done for the whole holiday. But as a child, Christmas was just great. We had a, an old farmhouse and we had, you'd walk into the farmhouse and there was this, this big family room. And then you'd walk into this horrible little kitchen and a dining room and a living room, you know, traditional. But there were so many kids, and my mom would be so tired, she would just, they couldn't wrap everything. They would tack a sheet up over the entrance to the uh, living room. And you weren't allowed to go in there. You had to have a little food in your stomach. And then they would rip the sheet down, and it was just this pandemonium. But then as, as we aged and some of the kids moved away, then it slowed down a bit. And I remember my mom and I would stay up late Christmas Eve in WJR, the great voice of the Great Lakes used to run the old CBS radio Christmas classic of Charles Dickens. And we would listen to that many years in a row and we would wrap presents and it was just this great little tradition. And then as more kids moved away, Christmas changed again. And I think it was, I came up with this idea, why not celebrate New Year's instead of Christmas? Families can have their own little Christmas party, but the big family will get together New Year's Eve and New Year's Day. Number one, we are Scottish, and everything was on sale after Christmas. But then it was just easier, and it was just such a relaxed feeling. And then as with my small little family, that's turned into we have a sweet little celebration now on Little Christmas. And there are some years, which is the uh, Greek Orthodox. Yeah. We have a, more fun with Little Christmas than than Big Christmas, but they did, a, they did a great job of instilling Christmas in our hearts as, as kids. Do you have any recollections of gifts that you received as a kid that were particularly special to you? Well, I remember some great gifts. We had uh, Hot Wheels. There was a car that you would, you would have to gear this ripcord through it, and it was just basically one big center wheel, and you'd rip that thing, and that thing would go, and then you could get one that would smash they may have been called smash ups or something where you would collapse the vehicle and then if it would hit anything it would blow up i thought that was the greatest thing and then my other brother had one too and so they'd blow up together and then i can remember a radio oh i love that radio got a radio yeah yeah. transistor shortwave shortwave radio yeah 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 it was a that was a dynamite gift love that those are great memories yeah 
so and then you know, they were I, I just feel for them because it was just it was just so crazy. Eight kids and we had television, but basically it was you had like five channels. So there was wasn't that much variety and there wasn't that much distraction and there were so many obligations between school and church and just you know, we had chickens, we raised chickens, so somebody had to clean out the chicken coop and somebody had to get the eggs. We had pets at times and it was just amazing that we survived with as little, there was a lot of blood because my dad, I've seen fingers cut off and I've seen some pretty gruesome things there. But, you know, we survived. You know, we got, we got through it. One other, you know, I just remembered a memory Sunday night after church. Walt Disney, remember the wonderful world of Disney? Very well. So we would, and what my mom would do is she would make actual hot chocolate. Not, she graduated to the instant stuff. But when we were kids, it was actual chocolate milk that you would warm up at a certain temperature and we would have uh, hot chocolate and sometimes we'd have hot chocolate and toaster hot chocolate and peanut butter sandwiches on sunday night to watch wonderful world of disney i love that too that's the best so many of us people our age and maybe even a little younger remember the wonderful world of disney yeah it's great on sunday nights good stuff always good stuff because the family could watch it together and, you know, you kind of felt like you were cheating because you could watch it together and you knew you had to get up the next morning, but it was okay. They'd load you up on sugar. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this is great. Definitely. Now, John, you had mentioned your mother passed away in 2019. Correct. Yeah. How old was she? She was, believe it or not, 93, same age as dad. They both made it to 93. And when did your dad pass away? He died, well, 18 years. Well, no, yeah, gosh, that can't be. Can that be? That's just shocking. I don't even like to think about that. Maybe 2001? Something like, yeah. Can I do the math right there? Wow. Yeah. So you had Oof. them Oof. for a long time. What a blessing. Total blessing. It's funny because you ask my brothers and sisters, and they have total different takes on our, we, we'll agree on certain historic events. This happened, this happened, but their take on it is different. Because in a way, I guess I was just very, I think we all are selective in mm. either what, what we observe as we're going through it, and obviously what we recollect as we look back. And as I look back, I cherish my childhood, but, you know, I was somewhat, maybe I was just overlooking other things that were going on, either by design or by default. But I just remember having a wonderful relationship. It was stressful with mom just because she was always stressed. But, you know, we all loved mom. But dad had his cabinet shop, and I became his bookkeeper when I was 12 or 13 years old. So I was in charge of the money ever since I was a little kid writing the checks, doing the sales uh, tax, and doing end-of-year reports. And I felt very comfortable doing that. And then that was this different kind of relationship I had with Dad. And we were in the barn one day, had the massive old barn. And I found his old wooden shaft golf clubs. And I said, hey, what are these, Dad? He said, oh, yeah, I used to play golf. You played golf? I used to play golf three times a week before the war. And I said, well, we should play. And he said, okay. So out of the blue, as this kid, I may, I was in middle school, we bought a set of clubs for me and bought a set of clubs for him. We ended up playing golf together once a week during the spring, summer, and fall for probably 10 years. I had those. And then his really? brother his brother got involved. We, by default, joined a country club. We bartered out woodworking for a country club membership. And mom would come and meet us on Friday night after a quick nine holes. And it was just great. Wonderful memories to yeah. spend that much time with your dad. Yeah, and, and, and some stories, some of what was going on, but a lot of it was just being out in nature, and he was so vital. He was so strong and so healthy that 
we had pull carts. You know, we would walk the pull carts. And as he got a little older, we started riding. And, of course, I always drove the cart, which was fun. We'd talk about great shots, and we'd end up playing with guys from church and a lot of laughs, and it was a lot of fun. So that's, you know, I have these fond memories, but none of my other brothers really had that time with Dad at all. It was a different dynamic because they were more in the front lines of trying to make the cabinet business work. Is the cabinet business still in business? No, it's just that the other, my oldest brother, Phil, is a mechanical genius, and he works, you know, in that field in Nashville. My other brother, James, is an educator and a songwriter, and he's at uh, Belmont University. Uh, my brother, uh, Stephen, is a terrific craftsman, does it as a craftsman, uh, you know, kind of a contractor kind of guy. And then my brother, Andrew, is really just off the charts, gifted, but he works in fabrication and uh, down in Florida, so no. Sounds like a very talented family. And speaking of talent, John, you have a very distinguished career in broadcasting, television, and radio, and you are my favorite weatherman. Well, that's because you're con- you're interviewing me. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that's true. It's, you know, get Lonnie in here, get Bill Evans in here. It'd be a whole different story. <laughs> But let me ask you, how did you come to gravitate toward broadcasting? Wow. I always loved it. I always liked doing shows. I have a brother, it's you, and he uh, is a terrific musician, just really gifted, like probably the, the smartest musician in the group. And he and I would put shows on for money when I was in college and high school, and uh, we'd write shows and do, he's a great singer, great keyboard guy. So I always like performing. So that's good. And then I have another little sister who's an educator. I've got my brother James is an educator. Mom's an educator. I thought, you know what? I'll, I can like perform in the classroom. I'll, I'll get my master's degree and, and I'll be a teacher. So that's what I was going to do. And I got my master's in Missouri, central Missouri state. And I was offered an, a fellowship to get the PhD, which I really wanted to do. But the same week I was offered that, I was offered a job as a weekend weather guy. I used to teach a class in Missouri with a producer from KMBC, ABC for Kansas City. And she said, you'd be a good weatherman. So I said, well, that'd be fun. I put together a tape just to see how the business would work. And I, was, I couldn't believe it. I got three job offers. So I took one in Columbus, Georgia, and I said, I'd do it a year. And then I'd go back and get my PhD, and I never did it. And so I, now that I'm a weatherman, i got to study weather. So I had to go back to school. There's something at uh, Mississippi State University. You can pick up a lot of atmospheric science. So I did that. And, uh, you know, then I just kind of have stumbled my way through all these jobs and been very, very blessed along the way. Well, we love having you in the New York area, John. So within your career, what would you say is one of the most exciting events in your career? Gee whiz, exciting So, exciting events in Columbus, Georgia, WRBL, we used to do a lot of hurricane coverage, and I can remember uh, covering hurricanes, and one night, uh, I'm driving around, I think it was uh, with uh, one of my colleagues, Richard Elliott was his name, and we were working together, and we were, like, dodging massive amounts of debris. Ultimately, there were 70 tornadoes that night, and we were in the midst of them. I mean, we really oh. came very close. And, that, and then another hurricane, the, the damage was so bad. During a night, I hear this kind of rhythmic beating. It's, what is going on? We, it, we're not losing the roof because I would know what that would sound like. Went out the next morning, there was a Chevette. Remember the Chevy Chevette? Yeah, the Chevette. Well, yeah. it was two feet tall. The storm surge had pulled it out and was rhythmically smashing it up against this 
storm retaining wall. And then I went out and I was, what, what, what's all that? What are those balloons doing underneath the, no, no, those are the hulls of boats that were submerged and flipped underneath other boats. The damage, hurricanes are, I mean, they're beautiful, impressive storms, but they're so devastating. So I just remember hurricane coverage. And then when I was in Bakersfield, I loved Bakersfield. It was just it was Bakersfield. It's a good old, you know, desert community in California and had a big show with Galen Young. Just a lot of fun. But we had fires and I got a lung disease. I almost lost a lung in a fire out in Bakersfield. Yeah. Oh, no. Yeah, they put me on amphotericin is the chemo-like drug. It has to be delivered through a pick line. And it was a three-month protocol. I remember the first time they put it in, they had to strap me down because I was having violent, violent seizures. Oh, my gosh. Are you okay now from that? Mm, you know, I, for years I had to have lung function tests, and my lungs are – I was kind of worried with COVID, but they, they said I was fine. But Mary Ellen, my bride, she was a reporter there, and I was always kind of the big deal there. That was KGET, Kern Golden Empire Television. And uh, so I just – Loved Bakersfield, but she was the new reporter, and we were dating. She came over to see me because I wasn't picking up my phone. I had collapsed, so they had to rush me into the emergency room. And uh, so, and she reminds me of this that she saved my life. She frequently, but uh, it was brutal, you know. And that's I think that kind of flipped a switch in her, and she wanted to get out of the desert. Uh, San Diego was just sweet. We had fun, a lot of fun in San Diego. I became a human tea bag. They dropped me, uh, Lipton sponsored, they actually put a tea bag suit all over me. Oh, no, you're yeah, kidding me. No, right? and then they've dropped, and we had this great studio, brand new studio, and you'd open the back doors, and the jib camera came out, and we said, now let's make tea, and then John jumps into this big vat of water, and I made <laughs> sweet tea. But little did we know, guess what you can have? You can have a caffeine-induced headache. Oh, my <laughs> lance, the headache from being a human tea bag was horrible i'm swimming around the what in the world but we just that was san diego but then that uh, 9-11 i was on the air for 9-11 and i had worked when i went to city university in new york i worked at alexander's remember alexander's department store of course i do it's so on, i uh, the garden state parkway up in uh Paramus well area, that was the big one but area. they had yeah. the the mall underneath the world the two towers of the world trade center there was an alexander's we had a jewelry department, the Alexander's Jewelry Department. So that's oh. what I did when I, I lived on Staten Island. I'd take the ferry in, I'd work Alexander's, and I'd go. I was at City University. So I'm, I'm on the air in San Diego X many years later, 2001, a beautiful morning. And I remember we had a two-story studio. I remember we used to get a shot from the, that was one of the many shots. I think the Weather Channel would feed that shot, and we would take it. We were affiliate, and it was a beautiful blue sky. But I remember there was this accident, and I said, well, we're going to lead with this, aren't we, for our show, which it's now 9 a.m. East Coast time, 6 a.m. I was doing a morning show out there. And he said, no, no, it's a local story. Said, Come on, that's a pretty big story. Well, then, of course, it just took over the whole cycle. And it's like my having worked in that building, is like, oh, my gosh, mm -hmm. the loss of life. Mm -hmm. But that changed everything, and then I ended up on MSNBC covering how the world had changed. And one of the big stories there, they uh, – I did the DC sniper. I did the uh, gubernatorial recall in California. I used to do uh, the uh, caucuses. We crammed a lot of stuff in the short time as at MSNBC. But they flew me out to Pearl Harbor. I got on the uh, USS Abraham Lincoln, 
and a bunch of networks were there, and it was George Lewis, who was a NBC correspondent, sweet, sweet man. George Lewis and John Elliott was with MSNBC. So you go through CNN, you go through all these other cats. There were some locals. There were some big guns. I think Reuters was there, BBC. Then we get to NBC at the end of the road, and they're out of rooms. <laughs> so what's George Lewis, this, this star of NBC, and, and little old Johnny Elliott? What are we going to do? Uh, you're going to have to go to male birthing. What? So we're down by the, the lift elevator, which was great, because you're with these guys, and you figure, these guys live in a three feet by six foot, maybe, maybe it, was this, it had to be a little longer than that, but that was their whole world. They have to lift up the mattress and then get their supplies into it. That was their world for months at a time. And so we were just riding from Pearl Harbor to San Diego. Then we ended up taking it up to Everett. But it sure gave you a different perspective being down there. And that was the aircraft carrier that the president landed on. That was mission accomplished. I was there for that moment when he was there with all the the crew and the big banner behind him. And I'll never forget pulling into San Diego. And it's just amazing. You know, when you leave Pearl Harbor, there's something called dressing the rail where they all stand at attention in their dress whites out as they go over the Arizona. It's like, it's this surreal moment. And I'm on the phone with New York and I'm on the air because they have aerials of our ship going by. And, and it's just, these are young people. These are kids, you know, and they're manning the rails and they know what that means to go over the Arizona at Pearl Harbor. And then... As we continue to go out, I'm on the phone. They kept me on. I was doing this live coverage. And then they, they take you off air. And a producer in New York, or it was Secaucus, says, uh, hey, can you, uh, can you call back in uh, uh, for our next hour? And I said, well, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what, the, there's, there's not going to be any service. <laughs> and the kid said, why not? I said, I'm on a ship. <laughs> I'm, going, I'm going out over the ocean. There aren't any cell towers out in the ocean. But then when the uh, John Siegenthaler was one of the anchors, so what we had done is we had rigged this way to satellite beam in. So it wasn't cellular, it was satellite. There was a different way to do it. And they put me on the fan tail, and they were so concerned about hitting the mark for the arrival of the president. We were doing 45 knots out in the middle of the Pacific. I mean, 45 knots in something that weighs, what, 97,000 tons? I mean, it's just some huge number and the spray from the fantails great so they tossed to me i tossed to my story about this city on the sea and then siegenthaler says this is great john but where in the world are you <laughs> so, oh that's great i'm on the back end this is the fantail and this is and then of course my camera guy zooms in it was just just spectacular but then as you pull into san diego you're on there and it's, i'm just amazed as a little kid from a little farm in Michigan that I can speak and two seconds later after it goes up 23,000 miles comes down it's beamed across the world on this network but I'm talking to a young lady and she's saying that um, uh, I'm saying you know hey great who are you looking forward to seeing in San Diego and she said my baby and I kind of stopped and I said your baby well how, how old is your baby oh she's going to be 14 months how long have you been out, out at sea? 11. That was a very, it was a, I can't remember the math, but it was like, she left when that baby was like two or three months old. Oh, and then she starts crying and I oh, almost start crying. Of course. And I just, well, then, then what's, what's next? And she talked a little bit. And I said, why do you do it? I said, well, I have to do it. You know, it's just important. What we're doing is important. It's like wow. that moment, the sacrifice, this is a, a young lady. You know, this kid, she may have been 22 years old. And, you know, th- those are the kind of stories that I remember from, 
MSNBC, and then after that, I went to L.A., ring-a-ding-ding. Those were fun days. <laughs> I remember I'm walking over in Hollywood with one of my co-anchors. I'm thinking, it's just like people don't really don't care about news people out here that much. Mm-hmm. And he, he says, and that's why. And I said, what? And we looked over, and there's Billy Crystal. <laughs> it's like there's oh, too many God. movie stars. They don't care about us. <laughs> but that was fun. And then, uh, then New York. And that was I've been in New York since 07. Oh, seven. Now, John, I remember listening to you when we had the big event in the New York area of Hurricane Sandy. Yes. What are your recollections of that time and what it meant to be a weather person telling the public what to expect during that crisis, which it really was? Well, I don't want to offend people now. And there's a small group of people I am going to offend. I believe that the governor of New York... And the mayor of New York, and uh, there were certain other elected officials that were very eager to throw uh, forecasters under the bus, blaming us for all of these. We, nobody told us, nobody, nobody said it was going to, hold on right there. We said moon was a big part of Hurricane Sandy. It was the timing and the tide, and that's what caused this flooding. But we said, this is not good. This is the potential. This is what we're looking at. Now, I believe between the storm surge, the wind damage, and the context of other storms that had happened, we were very, very vulnerable. But I believe that a lot of the, my colleagues at Four and Seven and Picks and across the board, there was very good agreement. There was very good model agreement. We were all sharing pretty much the same story. And I think, you know, we timed the storm out. It was just such a mat. It was kind of this perfect storm, not to be glib. But the problem was some of the reaction of some of the elected officials. I was just floored by that and angered by that. Now, as far as the personal toll, you're here out in West Essex. I was stuck in the city. We had no power for, I can't remember how long it took to get the power back on. And when you look at some of the heartbreaking stories along the Jersey Shore, and then remember in Queens, the fire, couldn't get to the fire. It was just the power of... All the elements working against that community, it's just that's just heartbreaking when there's just nothing left. I remember our church on Thanksgiving, which was a few weeks later. We did a mission trip to Staten Island oh, yeah. to help with the relief there. And there were houses in the middle of the road oh, yeah. mm-hmm. off their foundations. We were doing salvage work. And we were pulling up floorboards. Houses were starting to fill with mold. There were stories we heard from people who were literally on their second floor watching the water rise up to their level. Horrifying. Absolutely horrifying. But I know you must have been working many, many hours during that. Yeah. It's, you know, during the cycle of of a storm, you rely on the weather department for a lot of the content as far as the forecasting and storm track. And then when the news takes over, then you're relegated to just updates. But it's you still have to work together with the kind of the news and the weather department, and there's this yeah. back and forth. And that's pretty much the model around at most news operations. But then all the while, uh, and this is probably from my, my dear sweet mother and father, you, you think of personal stories and like mm-hmm. your history, your story. Mm-hmm. You know, some of these Jersey homes, these were multi-generational homes. Mm-hmm. Some of these Staten Island homes, you know, these were passed down from generation to generation. And then how are, you, how are you going to rebuild with the cost and now the new regulations? That was all running through my head 
as we're covering, said, this is this is really, really bad. It's heartbreaking. It was heartbreaking. One of the things that we saw was photo albums soaking wet, destroyed, moldy, yeah. lying on the floor. I mean, it, it puts so much into perspective because you prioritize. Obviously, life is more important, but then... What's next on the list, and what's next on the list? You know, and and when stuff is when your life is literally washed away, how do you how do you rebuild after that? Yeah. But they do, they do. And thank you to you and the weathermen, weather women who were keeping us posted during all that because we knew it was going to be really bad yeah. by the time it hit. Yeah, um, that was something that was known because of the good broadcasting. You know, there's this very delicate balance that you have to strike between alarming and informing. And I always want to inform and not alarm. But when the numbers kept coming in every model run, the algorithms to come with these come up with these model runs are very, very complicated. But when there was so much agreement, different formulas coming up with the same output, it's like informing became alarming. And that was really hard with that storm because you don't want hysteria. Because the cliche is anytime it's going to snow, bread and milk and French toast everywhere. But with Sandy, that was a whole different story. Yeah, definitely. Well, I want to ask you about, you mentioned your wife. Yes. Was, was a reporter. She was a reporter at KGET, Current Golden Empire Television, Channel 17. So my wife is stunning. She's 5'10". She was a former Ford model very successful Ford model. And then she realized, well, she liked TV. She kind of got back into the journalism field, uh, did the internships in San Diego and had worked at the cable outfit in Carlsbad. And then she got this job in uh, Bakersfield. But then she, yeah, you know, TV, you either, TV's a different kind of animal. And I don't, I just, she just didn't love it. You know, she liked it, but didn't love it. And then we married and had Elizabeth, my daughter, and then she didn't work for a while, and then she just kind of went back, ended up more real estate for a while, and then pharmaceutical, and, uh, you know. I feel bad. Every now and then she'll get a modeling gig, and I feel like if she just really wanted to, like, all-out model, she could, but that's it's just such a gamble in that field. So it's it's certainly been an interesting dynamic. Definitely. So I want to go down this path next. In what ways were you impacted by the family that raised you and the family that you have now? Wow. That is an excellent question because I believe one of the reasons I am the way I am is because in my family, this crazy family that I grew up with, you had to differentiate yourself. You had to do something to stand out, I guess, as I look back. Because I remember when I was, gee, was I five and my mom sang a solo at church. His eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches, and then I would sing, me, you know, and I always got a big, you know, that was great. So the next thing you know, it was the performing. I have these brothers, and, I mean, the Osmonds were on to something, and so were the Jacksons. When brothers sing together, there's a sound that you get that it's hard to replicate. And we used to sing quite a bit, and then it came down to, just being exposed to performing, performing at home first, and then performing in the community and being embraced by that. When I was a kid, I started on cornet. They moved me to baritone. They moved me to tuba. I learned to read scores at a very young age. So I was conducting bands when I was in eighth grade. So I had a musical home. I think that made a huge impact, the respect of music. 
But I had a father that always read. He was always reading. He would get up, Matthew Henry has a commentary, he's a Bible commentary, and he would just plow his way through the Matthew Henry commentary. And I don't, I've not read that, but it's old, right? He was a cat that was writing like 100 years ago. 18th century, I yeah. yeah. So there's a different language, a different vernacular. Then my mom would reinforce the use of language. You know, if there's any privilege I have, it's word privilege. I grew up with great vocabularies and with great usage, both my mother and my father. And my dad, he would listen to the radio while we were working in the shop, either great preachers or great history. So there was always this sense of history growing up and this respect of history and fun too. What state capital is the only state capital that shares no letters with the state that it's capital of? I don't know. I'm not telling you the answer. People are going to ask that. So there you go. That's the kind of stuff my dad would lay on us. What state capital shares no letters with the state that it is capital of? So I grew up with word games, and my dad had a great sense of humor. My dad was the funny one. My mom appreciated a sense of humor, but my dad, he was, had that kind of dry wit, and he, he could milk a story. He had a great way to tell a story. My mother was very bold. I can remember she would witness to people, and I was like, oh, my God, how can you do that? But now I have great, fond memories of that. <laughs> we were at a bowling alley once, and so, and this, I don't know, this is a podcast, so I hope I can say this. So we're at a bowling alley, and these, you know, the fact that my mom would even take us to a bowling alley, it was just bizarre. Why am I at a bowling alley with my mom? So we're bowling, and these kind of young, rough guys, you know, like hip guys, and they would take the Lord's name in vain. So one of them, they, he got a gun, and he said, Jesus Christ. And my mom said, he's my Lord and Savior. And it was like, oh, I said, whoa, it's like, uh, what, what's going to happen next? But she was not ashamed or afraid of anything. Did they so, back off? Yeah, yeah, I think the fact that she kind of, I don't want to say she stood up to him. She was nice about it. But, you know, like language mattered. You couldn't take the Lord's name in vain at our house. Yeah, absolutely. You couldn't swear in our house. Mm-hmm. I mean, it would happen. But you would get, you'd hear about it. You'd you know? hear about it. Language mom. mattered, yeah, you know. Yeah. So I think that shaped me. And then now, as I'm deconstructing my life, my wife is very strong. She's very independent. And it's like, well, wait a minute. My mom was strong and independent. And it's so funny how like we're cycling through, and then I see my daughter, who's this kind of great blend of of everything. But it's like, what in the world? <laughs> she gonna be? It's going to be fascinating to watch her. She's 5'10", beautiful. She's got all these these things going for her, and she's very creative, gifted writer. So it's kind of this lineage. My dad was a high school dropout, but he tested so high, they put him right into OCS, and he would just methodically work his way through classic literature. He read a lot of Russian literature. He read. He just was always reading. Wow. And then my mom, obviously, was she taught uh, English lit. She taught history lit. If you had a question, you'd ask her, what did Shakespeare, oh yeah, it was X, Y, and Z. So it was a lot of learning. So I think there's a lot of great things ahead for your daughter. I hope so. Uh, She's got the DNA. Yeah, and she went to a great school. She went to University of Virginia, which is a terrific school, just kind of this distilling all this knowledge and this love of learning, which I still love reading history. I love finding out. That's why I like, like your podcast, like little things, and like your the grandfather, the great-grandfather, the uncle, the, the connections. It, it's fascinating. 
It really is. And this interview with you has been a terrific Tedious experience. and boring. It's been, Who I'm are just, we kidding? I'm just about Nobody's to Nobody's even here. listening. <laughs> I mean, we lost them 40 minutes ago. <laughs> Hello? So, uh, any, is anybody even there? <laughs> I could play the little cricket sound yeah. here. Oh, no, they have that on standby. <laughs> where, uh, in San Diego, they used to do that. They would play crickets. Good. Good teamwork. No, this has been wonderful. I'm going to conclude by asking you, John. What do you want your legacy to be? Oh, boy, oh, boy. I want my legacy to be something that I have not achieved yet. Oh, that's interesting. Yes, I want my legacy to be aspirational. You know, I always think, what do I want on the tombstone? And there's a verse that always struck me. It's a command verse. Be ye kind and tenderhearted. And I want to be tenderhearted. That's what I really want to be. I want to be known as being, a, he was curious, he was interesting, but he was tenderhearted. And that's what convicts me. Is sometimes I feel like I'm not very tenderhearted. Sometimes I feel like I'm kind of a jerk. So I want my legacy to be something that I'm not yet. I want that to be me sometime. And that's how I try to, I try, try, fail often, but I try to be, I like tenderhearted. You should be tenderhearted. Well, John, I want to thank you so much for being on our podcast. You've been a wonderful guest, and you've told an interesting story. You're just saying that because you want me to get you on TV. Could you please I, get me on I TV, I know how John? this works. <laughs> <laughs> but I want to thank you, and uh, you're a wonderful guy, and you will always be my favorite weatherman, and you're a good friend, too. I'll see you on the street with the dogs. All right, John. Thank you again. You bet. So... For all of our listeners, keep discovering and telling stories that inspire you and others. Have a great day. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Your History, Your Story. Please subscribe, share, and check out our website at yourhistoryyourstory.com for episode notes and bonus content. We'd love to hear from you if you have any questions, comments, or a story to tell. Be well and God bless.